Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to manifest the marvelous mercy of God that meets us in our oftentimes messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number five. Today's guest is Pastor Kevin Labby, or PK Labby as he's more well known. Kevin is the lead pastor of Willow Creek Presbyterian Church in the greater Orlando area, and in this episode I get to sit down with Kevin and just talk about the intertwining of both humor and pastoral ministry. And we seek to answer the question, does laughter have a place in gospel ministry? We talk about that along with uh, touching on preaching, law and gospel in a youth ministry setting. Kevin also shares a short story about one of his first experiences preaching, one that didn't go so well. I think you'll be greatly encouraged by this episode as two brothers in Christ share a common passion for preaching grace alone. Today's show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Offering an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, the CSB helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word and inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. Now for Kevin Labby. How you doing, Kevin? I'm doing great. How are you, man? I'm doing wonderful. It's good to see your smiling face today. Well, it's always good to see yours. I'm very, very happy to see you again. And I'm so excited we finally got this. It seems like we were trying to schedule it for a long while, but I'm glad it's finally here and we're finally we're finally doing this. <laughs> I'm very glad, too. I was talking to my wife earlier today, and I said uh, just the confluence of events that precluded us from doing this sooner <laughs> Uh, really, really made me sad on the one hand because I was looking forward to talking with you, but on the other hand, uh, it could not be a better time to sit down and chat. Yeah, I think so too. Well, just you know, in light of that, if you could just as a way of introduction, just you know, sort of in- introduce yourself and describe yourself in a few words, and and that way uh, our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Great, great. Yeah, my name is Kevin. I uh, grew up in Western New York State. I grew up not really in the church, kind of nominally connected with it. My mom, my dad would attend on major holidays, maybe occasionally throughout the year. Uh, But when I was a little kid, about eight, nine years old, my aunt, my uncle uh, paid for me to go to a Christian summer camp. And that's where I first heard the gospel. And uh, God really stirred my heart. I remember weeping, uh, probably for a a guy my age at that time, it was a somewhat cliched conversion story. Friday night at camp, around a campfire, hear the gospel, believe, and uh, turn to the Lord through Jesus. And I went home so excited to learn more about the Lord. I was not around people that really knew the Lord at that time. And so most of my spiritual growth was just the meager efforts of a little kid. I went, I read the Bible. I didn't understand what I was reading always, but I tried to read it more and more. Eventually in high school, I got involved in the youth ministry and had a wonderful youth pastor uh, who shared more of the the truth of the gospel with me. I ended up going to a Christian college and decided that I wanted to study religion not so much to be a pastor, but maybe to be a professor or something like that. I had kind of romanticized the whole notion, kind of envisioned myself sitting around smoking a pipe and reading books and becoming <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Uh, I don't have the uh, the wherewithal between the ears to be C.S. Lewis, but uh, decided I would go to divinity school at Duke University. Uh, and in that first year at Duke, 
I took a job as a youth pastor at the local Presbyterian church. And that's where I really started to begin uh, to sense the Lord's call to ministry. I transferred to a Presbyterian seminary up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, graduated there, uh, began work as a youth pastor, became an associate pastor, then a senior pastor of a church up there, and then moved down here to Orlando just about three years ago. Uh, and have a wonderful congregation just northeast of Orlando here. And that's actually where I saw you for the first yeah, time face to face. That was so good, too. I'm glad that we've, we got to do that. And, uh, you know, as you just said, you just passed like th- three years as senior pastor of Willow Creek. And how did you come to do that? Since uh, you just said that you've, uh, you're from uh, New York and South Florida is a long way from New York. It sure is. Uh, I remember coming down to Orlando, Florida in 2009 for our denomination's general assembly. And my wife called me shortly after landing. I was out in the parking lot and she said, how do you like it? And I said, I hate it. I have no idea how anybody could live here. I said, I feel like I'm on the threshold of hell. It is so hot here. And uh, sooner than later, the Lord actually called us here. And uh, I ended up here, actually, it's kind of interesting. Some of my former members uh, at my church near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, moved down, started attending Willow Creek. And when Willow Creek was looking for a pastor, they knew that I was uh, at a point where I was looking for my uh, next call. They told me about it uh, and fell in love with the church. It's been great. It's a little intimidating to be there. Uh, It's a much larger church than the previous one I ministered in. And Mm -hmm. uh, we've got guys like Steve Brown there. Uh, who I get to preach to on a lot of Sundays, and that's a little nerve-wracking. But uh, other than that, it's just been a great experience. <laughs> that's like a true uh, law moment to try and uh, speak to Steve Brown there and try and impress him. <laughs> that, that's the ultimate irony. I, I you know, I, I came to an understanding of the doctrines of grace uh, in no small part due to Steve Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I sit there and preach to him for the first couple of years, all I could think of was performance and law <laughs> and conditionality. And I'm looking at a grace guru and I'm feeling nothing but law, but he's been so gracious, so reassuring to me. It's been very helpful. That's awesome. He's like everybody's grandfather. So that's, <laughs> he uh... really is. <laughs> um, now, just in you telling me that you had a lot of, ex- it sounds like you had a lot of experience in youth ministry, sort of describe, um, describe how, I guess that was in your experiences in youth ministry and also um, like how, how you've changed since then. I, I, I don't know if that's a great question, but. Um, no, no, that's yeah. 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 Well, when I went into uh, the youth ministry of a local church, that was really my only connection mm-hmm. uh, to God's word, to fellowship, really to prayer, to learn about all of those things. My youth pastor was in every way uh, a big brother in the best way possible Uh, if not, you know, a really young dad uh, to me. Uh, We spent time together in the context of the youth ministry, as well as just independent times. He lived down the street from my house. I'd go down and visit with him, talk with him. And um, he really filled in a lot of the gaps uh, for my spiritual development that I never would have gotten at home. And I think, you know, when I became a youth pastor, sometimes I'd hear people say, oh, the church shouldn't have those segmented ministries. Uh, You know, these should all happen in the context of family or so on. And of course, I see value in those sorts of things. And I don't think those things should happen independent of family. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for me, uh, that never would have happened. Uh, It was a youth pastor that made an extraordinary difference in my life. And I love youth pastors. I love youth ministry for that reason. Um, He sparked a lot of curiosity in me, asked me a lot of questions, challenged me to go deeper in in my understanding of the doctrines of grace and um, sparked, really God used him to spark an interest that led me to a Christian college where I could study those things. And uh, I'm forever grateful to that guy. Mm, that's awesome. I like to hear that because it seems like everyone has a different experience with youth ministry, but I like hearing, I like hearing the good ones. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me sort of about how, and maybe this is a loaded question, but tell me sort of how you have seen yourself grow and develop since you know you began ministry to where you are now. Because I'm sure that's a a big growth. For, I know it is for a lot of a lot of ministers, and and but just sort of sort of touch on that if you can. Oh, absolutely. I um 
I arrived at seminary, like I said before, not really intending to study for the ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of my interest in religion was really probably an, a parallel interest in philosophy and just deep questions about the human condition. And, um, and so when I started out in youth ministry, it was just as a small part-time job that I almost justified as, well, I'm part of the church. I might as well serve in some capacity within the church. And this seems like a, a you know, a good way to do it, um, independent of any issue of call. Um, but as anybody in the ministry knows, the ministry exposes a lot of deficiencies and I noticed as kids were asking me questions, I didn't have answers necessarily that I wanted to be able to provide them. And I also at times probably had too many answers and probably should have just been a better listener. Uh, and so I at times felt myself becoming discouraged and thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But it almost happened that at every instance where I felt a great discouragement, even though I might linger in that for a little while, God provided some way of uh, some grace that would allow me to persevere. And um, I'll give you a good example of that, if that's okay. They, <laughs> it actually has to do with the first time I ever preached. Uh, I was the, that part-time youth pastor. My pastor went away on vacation, and he asked me if I would be willing to preach for him. And I don't know if it was a combination of my pridefulness and my overestimation of my gifts or whether it was his complete negligence or kind of like all of them together, but I should have been nowhere near that pulpit. I did not know what I was doing preaching. Uh, <laughs> as the day drew close for me to preach, I actually started to feel panicky that I didn't have anything down on paper. And I remember preparing for that sermon. I knew that I wanted to sound like a combination of, you know, uh, Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, Martin Luther, John Calvin, but anything <laughs> I put down on paper just was awful and incoherent. Finally, the day came where I had to uh, fake it or make it. I got up in the pulpit and I had, in my life, I've only had one panic attack and that was it. <laughs> That's a true story. There were about 600 people there at the church service. I walked up into the pulpit. I looked at them. My tongue became like, dry tissue paper in my mouth. My heart was fluttering. I was hot and cold simultaneously. I felt like I could run a million miles, but I couldn't move. It, there were so many conflicting emotions. I looked out at the congregation, and I know this for a fact. I made some stumbling, stammering reference to Friedrich Nietzsche, and then I just said, I can't do this, and I walked down the center aisle of the church right out the back door. <laughs> I went to the basement of the church, which was my office, and I hid there hoping that everybody would leave and then I would be able to leave in complete anonymity. But the problem was I had this really huge car. I had a 1966 Cadillac. It was 22 feet long. It, it, it didn't blend in anywhere. And so everybody knew that I was still on the property even as they were exiting church. But I kept the door locked, I kept the lights off, and I just cowered in the corner. And I remember getting tears in my eyes, crying, I'm saying, Lord, I'm not going to be a pastor, I'm never going to preach, I'm never going to do any of these things, <laughs> I'm going to become an accountant, a computer programmer, I'm going to toil in anonymity. And while I'm going through kind of this inner crisis of prayer and, you know, inner dialogue, I, I hear this gentle tapping at the window to my office. And it was a kid from my youth group, a young kid, a middle schooler, who tapped on the glass and he found me through the glass into this dark room. He saw my eyes and uh, his name was Brian. He said to me, Kevin, we love you. And then he fell off the ledge that he was holding on to to peer into the window. Uh, <laughs> and I look back on that now and I just laugh how the Lord used that young kid uh, to encourage me in what felt like the deepest, darkest hole I've ever been in. Sure. Uh, uh, that was not the deepest, darkest hole I've been in the ministry. Uh, but in every time that I've been there, God's God's helped me to to persevere by making known his grace and in, in sometimes small and sometimes more extraordinary ways like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I continued on and, and have been in ministry now for close to some form of ministry for close to 20 years. Wow, that's awesome. And that's cool to hear that story like that, just because you can see really how God uh, uses you and he can use you in really crazy ways. And also the fact, uh, not to get super spiritual about it, but 
that's what happens when you try and do something in your own volition and not in the spirit's power. So, um, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, um, I've experienced that too. Just a little fact about me. I, I even preached some sermons before I was even saved. I came to the a saving knowledge of Christ when I was 16 and, wow. and, growing a pastor's kid, it was kind of, you know, just expected of you to have this sort of sense of spirituality about you. And, um, so yeah, that's, I like that story. That's, that's good. <laughs> um, in light of that, you know, you also, I think mentioned a little bit, uh, a little bit ago, how you were, you felt called away from a ministry and, and you don't have to get into too much detail, but how, how do you know, when you are called away from a ministry like that, especially one that you've been a part of for a while. I know I, I, I was, I've been, I w- I've been called away from a ministry myself. And so it's very tough. And I feel like there's almost like a stigma sometimes with that. So how, how do you know, and how do you leave graciously? I guess I would say. That is a great question. I had to wrestle with that over many months and I'm not sure that I have the full answer, but uh, I really had to wrestle with that. My church, my previous church, was going very well. There, there was no catalyst for me to leave. Um, nothing bad happening in the church that compelled me to look for another opportunity or for them to want me to seek another opportunity. Um, when I arrived at that church, it had just come through a very difficult time. Uh, the previous pastor left under some difficult circumstances and uh, the people at the church were discouraged. And so when I came in, it was, a, it was a pretty small congregation. Some folks had left. And I got to know them at a very deep level, which was very good. Um, over the course of eight years, God graciously uh, rebuilt that congregation. And we had um, wonderful signs of his grace in our midst. Uh, people coming to faith. Um, those who were coming out of scandalous kind of previous lifestyles uh, were learning what it means to follow and teaching us as a congregation what the gospel is really all about and who God intends to call to himself. And we went through all of that. It was, it was wonderful together. But I, I had a nagging sense that because when I arrived, my mode of ministry was very personal that it might actually be holding the church back a little bit, that I was too central to the church's identity as a person, and that it might be good for them to have a new season of leadership and a new style of senior pastor uh, where the ministry model could change. Uh, Very few pastors, some can do it, very few pastors can move a congregation uh, from a, a 100, 125 member mentality to a 500 member mentality without creating hurt feelings and um, difficult relationships along the way. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we, were, we were very blessed in that we did that, uh, but I started to see signs that maybe my presence there was holding the congregation back. Uh, my ministry model wasn't suited for their next season. Uh, so it's actually been great. God actually has brought to that church a wonderful pastor uh, who came from a larger congregation into that, brought some of those assumptions, and uh, the church is doing the things that it was endeavoring to do before, but I think now with a better framework and a better understanding and better viability for the future. Sure. Um, but it was very difficult. It was something prayed about greatly, uh, but God had to order for us circumstantially as well as speak into our hearts through prayer. And the nice thing is, as I look back on it now, I'm still friends with everybody there at the church. Uh, There's still good relationships. There's no hard feelings. Um, I pray for them. We stay in touch, uh, which has been wonderful. (laughs) That's awesome. I'd like to hear that. Um, Another quick question is, is that before we, um, before we got uh, got on here, we were just sort of talking about this whole distinction of law and gospel and um, sort of uh, describe and touch on your sort of uh, awakening to this sort of distinction and and how that has has played such a pivotal role for your ministry in the past couple of years. Sure, sure. I um, 
when I grew up, I mentioned that I came to, you know, faith in Christ when I was a little kid Mm -hmm. and I wasn't discipled very much just because I wasn't involved in a local church. I really, my default theology when I was younger was that my salvation was a cooperative between me and God. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I picked that up. If that was just, you know, wired into human nature or if it was something I picked up through a variety of channels, but I really felt like half of the salvation story involves my effort here. Uh, And more accurately, half of the justification story involves my effort. Uh, I have to perform. And so I really felt all throughout my teen years that um, I was saved in small part by what I did, which unfortunately meant when I wasn't performing uh, that I would move to despair So, you know, the pendulums I would swing from delusions of feeling like I was getting it right when I was doing my devotions and, you know, not uh, doing inappropriate things, you know, not watching my language, so on. I I, delusionally, I felt like I was doing well and I'd become arrogant and kind of look down on people around me who weren't performing at that level. Uh, When I couldn't perform at that level, I pretend that I was, Mm -hmm. uh, which you know, kind of that form of spirituality led me into hiding a lot. I'd pretend to be doing better than I actually was. And when the jig was up and I couldn't pretend anymore, um, it was kind of fight or flight. And uh, that characterized my spirituality through all my teen years, even some of my college years leading up to my first year of seminary. When I went to seminary, I didn't start in a seminary that um, uh, at least where I heard uh, the doctrines of grace but it was in the local church that I did, the Presbyterian church where I started to attend and minister. And uh, I was introduced to uh, salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. I had heard that in college, but rejected it. I started to uh, see that that was in fact what Paul was teaching in Ephesians, Galatians, Romans, so many other places. And uh, so it became theologically reformed in that broad sense uh, during my seminary years. But it wasn't until I was actually out of seminary uh, that I was given a, uh, a book by Steve Brown called Scandalous Freedom uh, that really opened up my eyes further to just how scandalous and far-reaching the doctrines of grace are and how free I am uh, and how my performance is not the, uh, the means by which I gain rise and fall in status or acceptance before God. I would have said theologically, I believe those things. Existentially, functionally, I was living as though my salvation depended upon myself. It was Steve that really introduced me to a lot of that at first, and then uh, several others. Once I heard of Steve, I heard of um, uh, New Growth Press, uh, that's now Surge, and uh, that ministry, and then even later in ministry, I started to hear the preaching of Tully and Chivijan. Um, and these things were all together wonderful uh, exposures to the law gospel distinction that I had never heard of, uh, even throughout my seminary years. I, of course, heard of the law. I heard of the gospel. Uh, but the law gospel distinction and law gospel preaching, that was something I did not understand until I was actually ordained and in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I and I find too that, and a lot of times, youth pastors especially find it hard to introduce this sort of teaching into a youth ministry setting, just because I think a lot of the times, um, you know, parents especially, but also pastor, the senior pastors will want to make sure that you know that discipline is usually the focus of a youth ministry. Why do you feel like it's so hard to preach this type of message? to a group of, you know, budding young teenagers? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I, I tend to think one of the reasons it's so difficult is because at first it sounds like indifference to performance. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's anything but, and many parents, unfortunately, and many churches look to a youth ministry to largely be about behavior modification Mm. rather than to be at the heart of gospel transformation. And so I, growing up, you know, in the youth ministry, that's what I believe the youth ministry was. I viewed my youth pastor as kind of a guru who could teach me how to live a sold out life for Christ. 
and that my problem was ignorance. It wasn't insolence in my heart. Uh, if I knew the right things and was educated the right way, if I had a Christian worldview, uh, if I could learn all the right propositions, then that would make uh, me into a completely different individual, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who could transform culture uh, for the glory of God. And it's not that transformation is a bad thing. It's not that morality is a bad thing. It's not that the third use of the law in my circles anyway, what we call that, uh, is a bad thing. It's what is going to fuel that obedience, what is going to drive it, what is actually the fundamental need of the human heart. Is the problem fundamentally ignorance, uh, or is it a hardness of heart uh, that um, needs to be transformed by the love of God, mm -hmm. um, the love of God that comes to us first before our performance, and stated more succinctly, um, does my performance matter or does Christ's performance matter uh, mm -hmm. most it is really the question. I think a lot of youth ministries are put under tremendous pressure uh, to act as though the performance of a sinner for God is more important than, a, than God's performance for the sinner. But the great irony of that is uh, that doesn't produce anything that's desired. Um, it burdens people. Yep. It uh, paralyzes them with fear. And like I said before, it's, you know, some kids will get it uh, or appear to get it at least externally. And unfortunately, we teach kids that what God is after is external obedience. When Jesus makes it very clear that true obedience is so much more than external obedience. Exactly. Uh, but some kids do that. They perform well. And we label them good Christian boys and girls, when in fact their hearts might be filled with pride, filled with arrogance, as mine was, you know, uh, so oftentimes it still is a struggle with that. Um, other kids are swung to, you know, despair. They feel as though they can't do it. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing with so many folks, younger folks within the church is when they hear a message of moralism from the pulpit, these kids are honest. They know I can't do that. And I'm not, I've got too much integrity to pretend I can do that. Uh, so I'm not even going to engage. Uh, I'm not going to even pretend. And uh, if I do pretend, it'll be for a time. But once I'm on my own and there's no more external compulsion to pretend, I'm going to live a more authentic life. And uh, the sad part about all that is the gospel's lost uh, when the emphasis is there, which I know you know, but uh, that was a real awakening for me. I, I went through years of, I've often said, if I could find all of my old sermons and burn them, uh, I, would, I would strike the match and pour the gasoline. <laughs> and now a quick break for a word from my ministry partners, Dead Men. Hey everyone, have you checked out Dead Men at www.deadmenstuff.com yet? If not, what are you waiting for? Dead Men exists to equip disciples and grow leaders. We do this through Christ-centered articles, devotions, videos, a podcast, and free resources like books. Dead Men presents the gospel in a straightforward and intentional way. Check us out today at www.deadmenstuff.com. Now, back to Kevin. You know, I, I liked what you were saying because, you know, I, I was sort of describe myself the same way, where I... I was like you, I was raised in the church, my dad being a pastor. And I, I, but I would say though, that not, not there any fault on them, but I was just, I grew up sort of a little Pharisee because I had, I had all the externals down. I knew the answers and I could spout out a lot of theological questions, but there was no revelation for me that I was a sinner until I was about 16. And I think, you know, I've said this to a lot of, a lot of people that, the most dangerous thing that can happen is growing up in the church because you mm -hmm. can kind of forget how bad you are and you can kind of forget that you are just oh, des as desperate of a, a sinner as, you know, Joe Schmo, who is an alcoholic or something like that. And we kind of make this distinction there. And I think that's what's the real important thing about this law gospel distinction is that it levels the playing field so much to where regardless of who you are, you are beaten down by this law, but you're also lifted up by this gospel at the same time. And that's why, that's why I love this message. And it's really, it's so fun to preach. And it's also so important too. 
And I think too, another thing that I think comes into play is also this idea of sort of this Christian competition. So like when you set up a classroom of teenagers that, you know, and you have this idea of morals or, you know, even some of the programs at a lot of churches that I'm familiar with, where you, if you memorize certain verses, you get certain rewards. It creates this really skewed view of what this is all about, because if I get this verse memorized, I can get this merit badge and then I can get this piece of candy or whatever it is. And uh, I, I think I think the idea of competition and spirituality is just very devastating. And it comes into play with this whole idea of moralistic uh, teaching and, and, and such. That's certainly that's a great point. That's an excellent insight. Um, sort of switching gears here a little bit, but um, how would you describe your preaching uh, style now? I would say now, because I know you've sort of developed over the years, but how would you describe it now? Oh, man. I'll tell you what. I, I, I think that some, and this is probably a gross overgeneralization, but I think some men preach because they're pastors and some men are pastors because they preach. Uh, I, and I hope that makes sense. I, what I'm really getting at is I think some guys are so comfortable preaching that that's their primary ministry. Their churches are preaching stations, and they are laser-focused on that particular facet of pastoral ministry, and they're so good. I have never been that way. Uh, I am not that way at all. I'm a relational guy. I love people. Um, I like to preach. Uh, I feel called to preach, but I will freely confess that I have never been uh, the comfortable preacher that some of my peers are. And uh, a lot of that has to do with technique, um, just learning different technique and getting comfortable. But I think that's even a relatively small part of that equation. I think much of what I did not like in my preaching before was an instinctive awareness that I was talking about grace and the gospel but underneath it, what I was really telling them was law. Uh, and I think that even though I didn't understand the theological nuances of the problem, and even though people around me would say, oh, that was a good message, I learned this, or I was given a principle for life in this area, thank you so much, Pastor, for this, I had an inward haunting kind of conviction, a nagging suspicion that I was not really freeing people. Uh, and so now where I am as a pastor is having come to, I was joking with you before we started, um, you know, I feel like I've come late to the law gospel party, but I'm ready to party. Um, I am listening to guys uh, that I cherish and appreciate and want to emulate. I'm listening to how they interpret and exposit the text and uh, it's become kind of a, uh, uh, an awakening to me of how I could learn to do similar things. But to answer your question more succinctly, I think one of the things that I have gradually, am gradually learning to do, I've not arrived, gradually learning to do, is to emphasize God's performance for sinners infinitely more than our performance for God. That's not to say I'm indifferent to application. It's not to say I'm indifferent to the existential dimensions of what the gospel means for me or the situations in which it can apply. Um, but I could have very easily years ago preached a message about Jesus um, and made it almost entirely about what we need to do for him rather than celebrating uh, what he's done for us and thereby somewhat counterintuitively more leaving people more empowered to live for the glory of God than they would ever be by me harping on you know, five alliterative uh, points for how to be a better dad or whatever. Yeah. Well, in light of that, how, how would you describe your sermon preparation on a given week? I know it varies from person to person and how much they study and stuff like that. How, how is it for you? You know, that, that's great. It, that is one area where I feel like the preparation I I enjoy so much now 
so much more than I did before because I don't feel like I'm, I feel like I have something of a plan when I come into preparation. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really a big fan of um, Brian Chapel, uh, who was the president at Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, he wrote a book, Christ-Centered Preaching, and one of the things that he recommends in there is looking in a passage for the fallen condition focus. And um, even though that book's been out for a while, and it's certainly not a new observation, that's really helped me to look at where what is in the passage, what's the rub between the law and our failure to live up to the law? What is this passage exposing about me and about us together about um, the way that we have fallen short of God's glory and God in his love and grace desires something better for us. What is that issue? Sometimes there might be, you know, several issues within a, within a passage, but I like to, to look at those. Um, I think after that, what I like to do is after studying the text and seeing that is what is the vision of God's grace uh, that's revealed in that passage, you know, chiefly in Christ, but also through the blessings that come, you know, by virtue of our union with Christ, um, and try to see that and unpack it. Um, what I'll often do is, after looking it through globally that way, I'll look through the 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 text in the languages. I've was blessed by my church with the opportunity to get Logos Bible software. And I recommend that to anybody, even if they get a lower version of it. It's such a helpful piece of software um, to go in and look for nuances. Um, After finding those, kind of exploring those, I'll I'll do kind of a rough draft of what I think I'm going to to say. Um, And then I'll finalize, you know, I'll look through, through that again. Commentaries and things, I don't, I try very hard not to get into commentaries, not that I'm indifferent to them, but I mean, I don't want to get into them too early in the process just because I know my nature. When I read a good thought by Tim Keller, uh, I cease to think of any other thought than what Tim Keller said. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) My creativity dies uh, once I read something from him or, um, uh, you know, any other uh, commentary that can be really helpful. So what I like to do is I like to come to those later and then see how their insights might um, correct, uh, supplement, uh, build around, and then I'll usually go through that draft. Then I try to take a break. I'll take a day away from it. Uh, I'll come back to it. And my wife and I, we have coffee usually two or three times a day. We're coffee addicts. <laughs> and uh, toward the end of the week, Molly will ask me, she'll say, you know, walk me through your sermon. And uh, Molly is so great at being po- uh, pointed, but gracious. Um, mm. And I actually, I've never confirmed this. I need to do it. I actually heard a story one time that uh, Wesley did that. He had somebody, um, a person in his church that he read the sermon to and gave her, it was a woman, the opportunity uh, to correct. And I would love to verify that. I've heard that. But Molly does that for me. And uh, and then all on Saturday, I tend to go through it verbally just if it will quote unquote preach. Um, (laughs) And I'll do a lot of corrections that way, but I, I am not in any way, shape or form uh, a great preacher. I have a long way to go. Um, I really love my people. I love my church and uh, Tim Keller. I think it was Tim Keller said that um, he said that, you know, uh, if you go to a church, and somebody invites you and they say, oh, you got to hear our pastor. He's great. And you go and you hear him and he's not that great. The only thing you conclude is the person that gave the recommendation feels so loved by that pastor that they hear his word through the filter of love. And uh, that's my hope is that my congregation knows I love them. And uh, uh, as a result, hopefully they'll hear the word of Christ through my meager efforts. And ultimately, if I can ramble a second longer, I've joked on several occasions that God has spoken through a donkey before. uh, So I take great confidence on Sunday that he can do it again. (laughs) (laughs) And for everyone listening, that is Kevin being very modest and humble. So uh, he is, I would say he's a very good speaker and I enjoy listening to his sermons uh, regularly. So I appreciate Kevin's ministry. And so he's being very modest right now. Um, But I would say too, um, you know, sort of, 
you said earlier that you would like to burn some of your ser- early sermons, and I would very much uh, harm um, echo that sentiment. Um, you know, earlier I think sort of something else you touched on that you just you would hear this quote and it's really good, and and then I just remember some of my early sermons. It was just like quote after quote after quote, and it was just like, oh, these are so good. I need to tell other people about these quotes and stuff. And now I would say the most, you know, foremost thought in my head when I come to a script, uh, passage of scripture is, well, it's, ironically, it's another quote, but it's from Spurgeon where he, when he says, find your text and make a beeline to the cross. Yeah. And I think every single time that that's what I'm striving to do, not try and, you know, fill my head with this, you know, this, this good commentator or whatever, it's make a beeline to the cross. And what's this show me, as you said, about my need and Jesus's fulfillment of that need. And I think that's, that's so important. Amen. Amen. I, uh, when I read your book, I, uh, I thought <laughs> to myself, uh, I hope this doesn't seem like flattery because it's not in that way. It seemed like an encouragement, but when I read that book, I was like, how old is this guy? <laughs> I just, uh, you really have appropriated these things so wonderfully. And at your age, I'm just, I'm in awe. God has been so gracious to you and through you. Uh, but yeah, no, I, that is, that's an excellent quote. I need to write that down. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that, Kevin. But, um, you know, another question, because I, th- I, I, I know you a little bit, not that much, but I, what I do know just from being around you is that humor plays a big role in your life. <laughs> and um, how important is humor to you in your life, but also in your ministry? Oh, man, I love that question. I, <laughs> I love that question. Um, I love to laugh. And um, I remember when I was in seminary, I gave a sermon and I was talking about God's judgment. And um, the the pastor, professor, who was critiquing the sermon, wrote on it, as you're speaking of the Lord's judgment, be sure not to smile uh, <laughs> through it. And uh, that's just always been my manner. I remember uh, being teased about that in fourth grade uh, by one of the teachers uh, who called me Laughing Labby was my nickname in the class. Um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've always been like that. I don't know where that came from. Probably a lot of insecurity when I was younger and, um, you know, desire to fit in. But one of the things that I have learned um, in ministry and in the Christian life and the people that I enjoy is that one of the consequences of taking God more seriously is taking ourselves a lot less seriously. And I think one of the marks, and I don't want to be glib, and I don't want to imply that Christians have to be here because, you know, the sorrow, Jesus is a man of sorrows, and uh, we don't make light of our suffering. We don't make light of others' suffering. Um, but I think that the gospel frees us to not take ourselves so seriously and to look for humor. Um, I've also found in ministry, quite frankly, um, that humor is one of the most um, – uh, what's the word, disarming um, <laughs> kind of approaches with people. I, you know, if I engage my neighbor propositionally about the gospel uh, and, you know, I'm just one more uh, pastor that he's encountered that doesn't appear to have any connection with, you know, everyday life who can't laugh at himself, takes himself too seriously. Um, I, I just don't want to stand out that way. I, I would rather people know that I'm trying to find the best in in things and trying to look for humor. And when there are uh, ironies in life, I I think that those, we don't have to hide those. Uh, When there's a hypocritical aspect of me, I don't need to live in fear of that and hide it. I can jokingly acknowledge it that I do stupid things all the time. I find myself a conflicted mass of priorities. And um, I don't need to uh, sh- uh, to live in fear of it. I can be open about it. And part of being open is I can even laugh at it. Uh, <laughs> if I could say one last thing, I, I really think laughter can be, again, doesn't have to be, but I really think it can be almost an act of defiance in a world that is so dark and cynical. Um, mm-hmm. Finding the joy of the Lord that doesn't always lead to happy laughter, but uh, can, um, when it does, it's, it's just, it's a powerful tool. 
it's a great preaching thing too. When I when I remember things that uh, I love in Matt Chandler sermons or uh, Tolian or Steve Brown or um, you know some other guys who are apt to use humor, um, the points that they were making stick with me tremendously. I remember those things. I think Jim Gaffigan, the comedian is actually one of the greatest commentators on religion uh, in our culture today. And he does it very subversively through the medium of comedy. And I, and I love him for it. I would totally agree. And I would also say, I would add uh, Brian Regan in there. He's, uh, he's hilarious and he's one of my favorites. And uh, I just love, but like you said, I love finding the humor in certain things. And I love that idea that the gospel, the gospel can free us from taking ourselves so seriously and I think, you know, something that Steve Brown always says is, is that the, that the world may know the laughter of the redeemed. And I love that because that is so true because we are the truly the only ones that have the fullness of, of a laughter of, of, of laughing with people because we know that Christ has done it all. So um, I love that. <laughs> I love that too. I ran into a friend after I became religious, not after I became a Christian, but after I became religious uh, during my seminary years, I went through a season of just being very dour and cerebral and somber. And uh, I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen for a while and they, they called me out on it. They said, you're not yourself. And they were not, <laughs> that I knew a follower of Christ, they were just saying something's happened to you. And they went so far as to say, I don't like it. Um, and I remember that haunting me. I think, what has changed about me? And um, uh, thankfully, by God's grace, uh, he called me out of that religiosity. I still fight it. I, you know, that's an idol we all probably have in our in our world. But, um, yeah, grace really frees us to not take ourselves seriously and to not take humanity so seriously. We're a mm -hmm. mess. <laughs> <laughs> and we can laugh about that too. And that's yes. what's good. <laughs> um, and I would also like to add too, is that I think a lot of the times we, um, you know, I think we forget just how humorous Christ was. You know, I think I, I mentioned, you know, in my book, uh, the fact that Christ is really humorous a lot of times and he's kind of sarcastic to people. And yes. I think sometimes we just read those over and we don't really read it that way. But if you kind of come at it at a different angle and you can really see that, you know, Christ was humorous and sarcastic. And I just, I just, I love reading those passages in that manner because it, it just gives you a new insight to Christ's personality that I don't think you normally get a lot of the times in, in you know, in a lot of churches. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. And this isn't Christ per se, but one of my favorite stories in the Gospels that I'm convinced includes humor uh, is uh, the gentleman who's who has his sight restored and the, the religious leaders are interrogating him, asking him what he believes concerning Jesus. And uh, the man responds with, you know, no small degree of exasperation. And he says to the religious leadership, he says, you guys are a marvel. <laughs> you know? This guy gave me sight and you're wondering who he is. <laughs> like that kind of, uh, man on the street kind of response. You, you guys are a real marvel. Um, I, I find great sarcasm in that. And I, and I think it's funny. I think it's meant to be read as, as funny. The, the fact of Christ's divinity being so obvious, uh, but those who were supposedly closest to it couldn't see it. And it points us again to uh, Christ's humanity because it shows that he had a personality and he was very dynamic and he was, he was a person who had a lot of feelings and sometimes they were of, you know, intense intensity and, and other times they were of uh, being jovial and being happy and being yeah. and joking. I'm, I'm sure he, he joked with his disciples. <laughs> I'm sure it was, it was very, you know, 12 guys all the time going around together. That's got to be an interesting experience. So um, yeah. anyways, I just wanted to mention that. Um, here's another question. What, what books are you currently reading and what books would you say have had the most impact on you and your ministry and on as, as since you've been in ministry, as he said, for like 20 years? Oh, wow. That's great. Well, I'm currently reading uh, Generous Justice. I just finished that by Tim Keller. I'd read portions of it before. I uh, just read that. It was excellent. 
Uh, I'm reading now Eric Guzman's uh, book. Uh, Eric is the producer at Key Life, Steve Brown's ministry. He wrote a fiction book called The Seed. I'm about three quarters of the way through that. And that's been a, a powerful uh, allegorical tale. I don't normally read fiction, so it's a bit of a departure for me, but I've enjoyed that. Um, I've been reading Steve's new book, Hidden Agendas. Uh, and that's just, uh, you say Steve Brown, say no more. It's just an excellent book, which actually reminds me a lot. It's not exactly the same, but it has uh, some complimentary insights to a book uh, originally published under the title True Faced. Um, and I recommend that to anybody uh, studying for the ministry or in the ministry, uh, True Faced. I think it's just T-R-U and then Faced. Um, that was the original uh, title. It might have a different title now. Um, but books that were, have been very formative to me, uh, of course, you know, more historic books, The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther was very helpful to me during my seminary years as I was struggling with human nature um, and paved a way for me to understand the radical grace of God. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say this to check it off the list, uh, but uh, Calvin's Institutes, I remember reading that in seminary, and that was very helpful for me in that season. Um, more contemporary books, um, uh, One Way Love by Tolian Chivijan was very formative for me uh, when I read it, and uh, still as I still recommend that to people. Um, and uh, let me see, uh, really anything by Tim Keller, Prodigal God, I, I love that. Um, I've actually put out on Twitter a few months ago for my Lutheran friends uh, to recommend uh, some books for me. So I put together a reading list. Unfortunately, <laughs> doctoral class at uh, RTS Orlando right now, and they're yeah. telling me what to read right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know how that goes later. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm familiar with that because when I was in college, I, I didn't want to read anything else. So I can't even imagine as a doctoral student. <laughs> Oh, I've enjoyed um, it tremendously, but it is a challenge. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. You know, I, I, I really love to read, so it's always good to get other reading recommendations. So I'm, I'm usually, you know, foolishly trying to read about four or five books at the same time, which is very foolish and inefficient. <laughs> but wow. I usually, I usually end up stumbling across one. I'm like, wow, that sounds so good. I can't wait to read. And I end up opening it and reading it, which is very foolish. <laughs> well, I, I should also say your book is great and I would recommend that to anybody. And I know that probably seems like flattery, but it is very, very, very good. And a <laughs> wonderful, wonderful introduction uh, to those doctrines. I, I, uh, I need to get more copies of that so that I can hand that out to new members at our church. Well, you're being very kind. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> well, no, that's sincere. That's very sincere. Um, you know, we first met at the uh, inaugural Christ Old Fast Conference this past uh, February. And what would you say was the biggest thing that you've learned since hosting that conference? Oh, wow. Well, I'll tell you, I think probably one of the bigger takeaways for me was it was so encouraging uh, to see how broad the uh, law gospel community is within the church. On the one hand, you know, it's, it's not always easy to find a church and a pastor that preaches, you know, a law gospel kind of sermon. And um, on the other hand, though, when you have a gathering like that and you see people from all over the country hungering and thirsting for preaching and teaching where Christ is the center and God's performance for sinners is being celebrated and sin is not being minimized, but in a counterintuitive way is being understood at deeper, more expansive levels because uh, obedience is not cast as external and outward behavioristic righteousness, but really to the depths of the human heart. That was remarkably encouraging to me. Uh, Daniel Price, um, Matt Popovitz, Chad Bird, Eric Sorensen, uh, the Rosenblatts, uh, you know, I could just go on and on, Elise, uh, Fitzpatrick, Jessica Thompson, um, seeing them all together and then seeing the various expressions of the body of Christ all together in one building, celebrating that. Uh, it was just a beautiful thing. I hope that they continue that. And I've been very happy to see that 
Uh, Christ Whole Fast is continuing with those kind of regional gatherings. They had one in New York. I think they're planning mm-hmm. several others, which is, is great. I, I was just excited, and I have been since I went to the 2015 Liberate Conference, and I went to this Christ Whole Fast Conference, and I, I have just been so encouraged by the fact that in the fact of knowing that just because I have a certain theological bent doesn't mean I have a corner on truth and that I can unite with all these other people because we are united in Christ. And I just, that has been the most thrilling thing for me is people from all different corners of the theological spectrum can unite in this one place in this one time, you know, for these couple of days and, that's that's so thrilling to me and encouraging. And I just leave there just really, you know, as the old saying goes, on fire for God, so to speak. And uh, that's just been the most powerful thing for me. I I love that. I, I would agree with you completely. You know, I uh, Christ Old Fast has a strong Lutheran presence. Um, but at that conference, you know, I talked to Episcopal folks. Of course, you know, David Zoll was there and uh, Lutheran folks, Presbyterians, uh, Methodist, um, you know, non-denominational folks. When you get to the essential truths of the Christian faith, when you're talking about the gospel, um, and you're not getting lost on secondary matters, as important as they are, um, those are in-house debates on those things. It's nice to be reminded, though, that they are in-house debates, that we're all in the okay. same house. Uh, as a, very encouraging. Yeah. I think that's a C.S. Lewis thing that we can all meet in the hallway, so to speak, and that we have our different rooms. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. The Presbyterian room is very boring, so I'm always excited (laughs) and go into the hallway and hang out with those Lutherans. (laughs) It's probably the most quiet, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. We have good taste in scotch, though. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Sort of as we close, um, I like to ask those questions because it's always, in, I always seem to get interesting and but very pointed and good answers is if you were, if you were in the presence and you had an audience of young men and you were only allowed to say one thing to them, what would be that one thing? Mm, wow. I would say, wow, that's an interesting question. I, I think one thing that I would say is don't give up. Mm-hmm. Ministry is very, very, very hard, and I enjoy laughing, but there are many things in ministry that will break your heart and will crush your spirit, and at many times, it will feel like church is killing you, and the fact of the matter is, it is killing you, but that's mm-hmm. not a bad thing. We all need to die if we're going to live, and so I would say don't give up. and. um I've seen guys taken to the edge of giving up and I've seen God resuscitate them back. And, um, you know, if a guy is going to go into the ministry, he needs to know it's not going to be a once or twice occasion that he thinks about giving up. It's going to be almost a daily occasion. This is more, um, we're soldiers and shepherds, but soldiers, and we need to be mindful of that, not in fear, but with a sober assessment of where we are. And um, not giving up means practically, in my experience, staying in fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we break rank with one another, uh, we really are not going to last long. But if we stay in fellowship, uh, God does mighty things through the band of brothers he's called into this. Uh, so yeah, no, that's a profound question. Amen to that. And that's one of the hearts behind this very show is just staying in fellowship and becoming ministry minded together. So thank you for coming on, Kevin. I really appreciate you making the time for this and uh, I hope it won't be soon before uh, we have you on again. Oh, pure privilege, man. I can't believe you'd ask. I'm so thrilled and honored you did. Thank you so much. And thanks again to Kevin for coming on the show today and chatting with me. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and read his blogs at kevinlappy.com, all of which you can find in the show notes. 
And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for staying with me and for listening. If you like what you just heard and would like to hear more episodes like this, be sure and follow the show on Twitter. You can subscribe on iTunes, and you can also follow along on SoundCloud. And if you really like what you just heard, do me a quick favor and leave a short review or comment. That'll go a long way for me to continue making shows like this happen. Thanks again to CSB for sponsoring the show, and thank you, as always, for listening, commenting, and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.